If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. When you get the French Revolution going over into the terror, well, that, of course, was a further argument for those conservatives or even reactionaries who said, look, this is what happens. If you give the masses any power whatsoever, they must be kept out of the political process. That was Paul Cartledge discussing the history of democracy. In the case of Newton, he spent much more time engaged in occult studies than he did in physics. And indeed, there's a very deep inconsistency between what he writes about scientific method, which is very, very sensible indeed, and the fact that he thought the Book of Revelations contained secrets about the nature of the universe. And that was Anthony Grayling talking about Isaac Newton, one of the great thinkers of the 17th century. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of March 2016. I am Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 
Here in the UK, we might take democracy for granted now. But for most of history, humans have lived in very undemocratic systems. And indeed, many would argue that the kind of systems we live under today do not reflect democracy as the ancient Greeks originally intended. One person who knows a great deal about this subject is Professor Paul Cartledge, a senior research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Paul is the author of a new book, Democracy, A Life, which tells the story of democracy from ancient times until the present. I spoke to him down the line a little while back to find out more. This is perhaps a harder question than it sounds. What do we actually mean by democracy? Now, do you mean, do we understand by it today, or do you mean, what do we understand by in, in antiquity? My book, which uh, is called Democracy A Life, focuses on not just the continuities, but the differences between ancient and modern democracy. And the very word itself, it, it's a puzzle. I actually deal with this in the book. Why we call today our various Western systems of political governance democracy, when in the ancient world, suppose a Greek were to come back in a time machine and see us in operation, he'd look at us with astonishment and say, that's not democracy, that is a form of oligarchy. So democracy, the word, the ancient Greek word, means people power. And as always, there's a, an ambiguity about the word people, which people? Well, the ancient Greeks were, shall we say, sexist by our standards, so that they thought men only should qualify to be fully empowered political actors and therefore citizens. So people power means the power of the empowered adult male citizens. And you might think, well, that's something like our way of thinking about it, except that we think women as well as men should be empowered. But then you think, well, the ancients also had slaves and they also had people who were resident in a community, adult and free, but yet were not fully enfranchised. So they were sort of halfway between being citizens and being slaves. So the ancient world is much more, in a way, complex than ours in terms of social status. But on the other side, it's much more simple than, than ours because they really had a very direct notion of what political power was. So we today tend to think that you and I, Rob, you and I, ordinary people, shouldn't directly on a day-to-day -day basis actually have a say or determine policy. We have a government and within a government we have a cabinet and within a cabinet we have a prime minister in this country. So actually we're very removed, you and I, from the levers of direct political power. So that's a start. So we, we're talking a lot about ancient democracy, but... But isn't it a bit, it's, it's more specific, right, isn't it? It's, it's actually from Greek. And is it, is it really only Athens that has this form of democracy in the ancient world? It is not only Athens by any means. The ancient Greek world was, uh, in extent, scattered, really, from as far west as what's today Spain and as far east as what's today Georgia. And then after Alexander the Great's conquest, it went as far as Pakistan. And within that large area, Hellas, the Greeks called it, there were something like a thousand different political communities. Now, the two that we know really anything very detailed about are, of course, Athens and Sparta. 
And in politics, as in many other things, they were not just diametrically opposite, but um, opposed, antagonistic. In other words, they fought their battles, both physically and metaphorically, over democracy. So Athens pioneers democracy. It's a complex question, exactly why and how it emerged, where and when it did. But it emerged about 500 BC in Athens. But there were, as I say, about a thousand Greek communities of which it's thought up to, well, we're guessing here, 250 perhaps maximum had some form of democracy. Now, this is where we get into the interesting question of degrees or kinds of democracy. And for that sort of question, and indeed almost all detailed questions of how ancient Greek politics worked, we're indebted to one major work of ancient political, uh, we would call it science, I suppose, but political theory, and that's Aristotle's politics, which means not what you and I understand by politics, any political decision-making within any political community, but specifically the sort of politics that happened within a Greek city state or citizen state, a polis. And of those, Athens was by far the most developed. It started democracy, it developed it had different forms over the years, went on for a couple of hundred years with some interruptions. But there were, as I say, perhaps up to 250 others which had some form of democracy. You said that it's quite complicated to know exactly how it came about, but do we have any idea where this came from, how democracy arose you know, so many thousands of years ago? We can specify certain initial conditions, in other words, but for which there wouldn't have been anything like democracy. The first is the very emergence, the invention of something called polis, which means uh, citizen state. It is a community of enfranchised adult males who are, they constitute the political entity. And so within that entity, which came around 700 BC or so, at different uh, stages, different speeds, different parts of the Greek world, around about 700 BC, you start to see the emergence of the polis. And one of the features of this is a notion of egalitarianism. In other words, obviously people didn't think everybody was equal, but those who were deemed to be suitably qualified, and it began by being suitably rich, suitably well-born, suitably well-educated. In other words, minority regimes, what we would call oligarchies or aristocracies. But nevertheless, amongst themselves, they had a notion that they should all be in some useful sense equal. Well, what happens is as the Greek world expands physically and also gets richer, more people start to think, hey, I ought to have a bit of a share of um, the power that you guys are monopolizing. And you're actually behaving rather badly, that is, uh, ethically. You're making mistakes. Or it's simply, I want a share of the spoils. So there develops over a couple of hundred years this notion of the people as a mass, and then the people as opposed to the elite. And broadly speaking, it's um, a time of crisis for Athens. Um, things have been going rather um, awry. They have been ruled for some time by a dictatorship, actually a familial, a hereditary dynasty. And they're starting to feel that they deserve more share of power. And there is a kind of revolution. A brother of a tyrant is assassinated. Uh, Spartans, I've said they're sort of 
traditional enemies of Athens. They actually invade to try to impose their, what they think is the right kind of regime. This gets the Athenians really in a steam, and they band together, and they introduce some immoderate, shall we say, inchoate form of democracy, people power, whereby it's no longer a matter, you know, what your birth is or how rich you are, but just that you are of um, a particular uh, Athenian status and family and you live in a particular part of the countryside or city of Athens. Athens is about a thousand square miles, by the way, uh, about the size of Derbyshire. And a man called Cleisthenes comes forward and he says, I'm going to hand over, I'm going to empower uh, the majority of ordinary Athenian citizens. And the word democracy doesn't uh, begin with, it seems to take a little while to come into being. And it is a very controversial word, I think, because if you're not a Democrat, if you're one of the old elite, you're very far from happy to have the masses empowered. So by about 450 BC in Athens, there's an up and running democratic system. The majority of citizens who turn up at an assembly meeting, they decide the policy of Athens. And that really is, in historical terms, quite an extraordinary situation. I and mean, Was it actually effective? Did it run Athens in, a, in an effective way? That's a very good question, and there are those who say that all democracies, including our own, of course, are inefficient because the most efficient form of um, political decision-making is a small cabal council of experts who understand they have the data, the relevant data, they can predict better than ordinary people. For speed, for convenience, they should uh, take decisions. So it is, a, if you like, an emotional decision as well as a, a theoretical position to take that ordinary people should be empowered to decide their own future. And the Athenians, as I say, had different varieties of democracy. They were democratically governed over about 200 years with some interruptions, counter-revolutions actually. And a couple of the counter-revolutions actually took place within a major war. Now, was it Athens' fault? Was it because Athens was a democracy that it got involved in this major, as it were, world war with Sparta? This is what we call the Peloponnesian War, which Thucydides wrote about. Well, probably not. I mean, it's one of those cases where, like the First World War, sort of it was inevitable in the sense that the two great powers of the Greek world, Sparta and Athens, were bound sooner or later to get embroiled in this. But as the war didn't go brilliantly for Athens, they actually did make one serious mistake trying to conquer the whole of Sicily while still not having defeated Sparta. The Spartans and the uh, enemies of Athens were able to combine. Athens is in trouble. And the internal opponents of democracy, and there were always opponents of it, as it were diehards who resisted the fact that the masses were empowered, who hated the fact that poor, stupid as they saw them, poorly born, ignorant people, actually because of their numbers, ruled over them, the elite, who they believed they should rule because it was their birthright. As well. well, they managed to achieve, through force and fraud, uh, a couple of revolutions in the late 5th century. And this generated in its turn uh, fascinating debates because the Athenians, having um, restored democracy, it's too complicated to go into the circumstances, had now to decide 
Why did we make those mistakes? What mistakes exactly must we never make again? How do we correct for the future? So they actually introduce a number of changes after the end of the Peloponnesian War, which they've lost. So you get a new kind of, and this is actually a more stable kind of democracy, which lasts for another 70 years. And at the end of the 70 years, why does Athenian democracy actually come to an end? In a way, you could say it didn't so much die as was assassinated. In other words, a combination of those Athenians within Athens who'd never liked democracy with Athens' enemies who happened not to be democratic, and in particular, a king of Macedon, Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Athens lost a major battle against Philip, and Philip was therefore in a position to make sure that Athens did what he wished. Well, to begin with, he did not intervene directly politically, but he was assassinated. His son took over, and Alexander's interests, his attentions, were elsewhere than mainland Greece. He spent um, the last 10 years of his life, of course, conquering the Persian Empire to the east. So the Athenians were, if you like, spared, or they had a delay of execution. But as soon as Alexander died, the Athenians, uh, the democratically governed Athenian city, decided to take on Maston. They thought, right, Alexander's dead. Maston's going to be a bit weaker. This is the chance to throw off the Macedonian yoke so that we're no longer subjects. They got it so wrong. They lost major battles by land and sea. And it was at that point that Maston was in a position to say, okay, guys, we're fed up with you, Democrats, taking these decisions, hostility to us. We know there are people in Athens who not only are not Democrats, but they actually rather favor being part of a wider Macedonian-dominated world. They will be, as it were, our representatives in Athens. So anyway, Athens loses its democracy in 322. 321 BC. There are a number of attempts to restore it, but uh, 150 years or so later, the great power of the Mediterranean world as a whole is now Rome. Rome never liked Greek-style democracy, primary democracy, ordinary people in an assembly making their decisions, and that was the decision of the city. They intervened very heavily on the side of what we would call oligarchy, so a few in the Romans' interest, governing their cities, subjects of Rome, paying taxes, paying tribute, and generally speaking, not rocking the boat. There were one or two sadly despairing attempts, if you like, by Democrats to throw off the Roman yoke. Well, that was even more impossible than trying to throw off the Macedonian yoke. So what happens to the word democratia, and this is a big theme of my book, democratia, the word, ceases to mean direct primary democracy within a particular city, but it means not having a monarch directly ruling you. So it comes to mean something like republic, and it comes to have connotations of freedom and independence from direct rule by some foreign power or by a local tyrant. But it does not mean old-style majoritarian primary democracy. In that case, it was the Athenian and Greek model, was that the only time this form of democracy ever really existed? 
There's a huge debate about the validity of using the word democracy anywhere other than where the actual culture produced the very word. I mean, it's a debate which extends to, in the modern world, people say, well, why should the ancient Greeks have all the glory, as it were? Why should other peoples be so incapacitated or feeble that they've never come up with anything like that system for themselves? And I'm rather a hard line if you like, I'm a reactionary against this more weakened view of uh, democracy as debate, as some sort of consultative process, whereby though actually there are rulers, either sole rulers or small groups of rulers who have actually all the political power, but nevertheless they are obliged to or they decide to consult with wider groups of people. Some people are prepared to call that democratic. It's not democracy, but it's a form of consultation of openness. I, as I say, rather hard line on this, and I tend to um, be rather exacting in my uh, usage of the term. But there have been books written, sort of study of democracy from going way back to third millennium Mesopotamia, where there were city-states. They were actually theocratic, and they were actually monarchic. But there is evidence for some occasion on which some wider body uh, is consulted, has, has some sort of contribution to make. I'm rather resistant to that, and I do think it's a peculiarity of the uh, fact that for this couple of hundred years, between about 500 and 300, the Greek world had evolved in a certain way independently of the powers around it, Middle Eastern, African, Egyptian, and so on, but evolved in its own way, its own political system, created the vocabulary, created the notion that ordinary people actually might run their own affairs. And yes, uh, it didn't always work. Yes, there were gradations of um, people power, people empowerment. But it was, a, a, to my mind, uh, still a, a bit of a unique phenomenon for those couple of hundred years. Do you think it's because it eventually failed that is why other civilizations and cultures didn't try and replicate it, certainly for a good sort of 1500 years or so? I think that's a very good um, point, that it did ultimately fail. That's to say greater powers uh, crushed the various forms of individual democracy that existed. And, of course... I've been talking about, in, when I talk about the ancient world, I mean the pre-Christian ancient world. But after Christianity comes along, there's a further reinforcement of the notion of non-democracy because uh, the Roman world is run by emperors and an emperor, a man called Constantine, famously Constantine the Great, is the first major power-holding convert to Christianity. And Christianity has among its founding texts the works of St. Paul. And among the various commentaries and discussions that go on in the early church, there is a radical separation between the things of God, one God, and the things of men. And so ultimately, Christians um, were of the view, whatever they differed on, but that ultimately the, the ruler of the world was God, a superhuman entity. And magistracy on earth, power magisterium in the hands of one emperor was the mirror image, as it were, of the sole rule 
the um, unique uh, rule of God in heaven. So the two went together, post-pagan Christianity, early Christianity, linking up between monarchy on earth and the notion of God in heaven. That put a cap, shall we say, on any resistance, any serious attempt to restore something like ordinary human beings in a secular way, controlling their own destiny and therefore um, instituting something like the old, now discredited democracy. And that went on for about a thousand years. And so we then get into a big uh, debate. I mean, there's all sorts of issues here, but um, Renaissance, Reformation, these are familiar terms. Well, they have one political impact or uh, consequence, which is precisely to reopen the question of whether it should be um, priests and kings who are, as it were, vicars of um, God on earth. They're um, theocratically empowered rulers. Whether Power should not now be more dissipated, diffused down from the very top. And this is where we start to get, first of all, of course, in Renaissance Italy, in Machiavelli in particular, a secularization progressive of the notion of political power. And so we're very far away from anything like democracy of the ancient Greek type. We're moving towards republicanism as opposed to theocratic monarchy. And this indeed is the process which underlies the next major uh, steps. And then in my book, I look at three major moments of the early modern recuperation of something like the notion that ordinary people, we, the people, should actually rule ourselves. So I start with the levellers' debates at Putney in 1647 during the English Civil War. I move on then to the American Revolution, 1770s, 1780s, and then uh, to the French Revolution. And still, democracy of the ancient Greek type is, if it's not anathema, um, it's at least very sort of suspect because it does seem to run the risk of, well, anarchy, to put it crudely, or if it's working stably, um, the standard accusation is it's the risk is of democracy, the tyranny of the majority. And so what emerges out of this it's a couple of hundred years period, is the notion of representative democracy. So, yes, the people, we the people, should have a say, but it must be limited. We must not run ourselves directly on a day-to-day basis. We must choose, or those of us who are um, allowed to choose, choose representatives to rule for us, that is, instead of us, as well as on our behalf. How much were those people who came up with the modern concept of what we call democracy, were they in any way influenced by the ancient Athenians? It's a very interesting question, the the question of reception or influence, because um, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, has written a book about the tradition of democracy, so of the attitudes taken at different times since antiquity right down to the 20th century towards ancient Greek, and as you rightly say, mainly Athenian democracy. And what's very striking is, and it's um, in a way not surprising, but it's very striking, is that most are hostile. And most writers, of course, most thinkers, most intellectuals are elite individuals. They therefore are not members of the masses, the poor majority of uneducated or relatively less well-educated people. 
right up to the American and French revolutions, the dominant tendencies to view ancient Athenian democracy, ancient Greek democracy, as peculiar, that is, of its time, not to be replicated, in fact, a bit frightening. And then when you get the French Revolution going over into the terror, well, that, of course, was a further argument for those conservatives or even reactionaries who said, look, this is what happens if you give the masses any power whatsoever. They must be kept out of the political process. But as it happened in France, Napoleon and so on turned the um, wheel back uh, the other way. People started thinking, well, maybe we don't want a dictator either, and maybe we should go back to some more popular notion of government. The American uh, Revolution gave uh, rise to a republic distinctly anti-monarchical. George III was a tyrant in their language, but nevertheless, hardly one person, one vote on all issues. But nevertheless, with a, a sort of populist dimension, which later on Tocqueville is going to pick up when he visits um, America in the 1830s and writes Democratie en Amérique in two volumes. He's very struck by, as it were, the egalitarian quality of uh, American social life. And so uh, it's something which, of course, still strikes us today in our country, a, a difference between us and the States and some other countries. So by the middle of the 19th century, the notion of representative government, i.e. parliamentary democracy, has become normalized. It, it's sort of recognized that more and more people are entitled, and actually it's helpful if more and more people be incorporated at a distance. They vote, but they don't actually rule. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the notion of democracy has come back on the agenda, and it's widely current again in a, now I would say, defanged sort of way. You said that often the elites were quite hostile or concerned about democracy. What about, say, revolutionary movements or mass movements like, say, the Chartists? Did any of them hold the Athenian model as being something to follow? Indeed. And there is a sort of an alternative history, a book by Ted Vallance on, on our own British history called A Radical History of Britain is very good at picking out from going back right to the Magna Carta and then through the Peasants' Revolt of the late 14th century, the Levellers, and as you mentioned, the Chartists. You can write an alternative history, which is a non-traditional uh, bottom-up rather than top-down. And yes, indeed... As um, the notion of representative democracy becomes um, normalized, there is this, if you like, spontaneous, more radicalist view of what politics should be, that it should be in the hands of ordinary people on a more day-to-day -day basis, possibly without thinking through the implications. And the Chartists of the mid-19th century are, of course, one of these groups. They spring out of workers' movements, out of the industrialized of the country. And this is, of course, something which the ancient world knew very little about. They had slaves, but typically slaves didn't work in factories and they weren't mass producing artifacts for uh, consumption and so on. We're in a very different world. But the Chartists, indeed, middle of the 19th century in this country and, of course, in Germany and elsewhere in Europe in the 1840s, 1848, you have a kind of uprisings uh, of mainly not the very poorest, but um, levels above that, believing that monarchy, and, of course, in Europe it was typically still absolute 
absolutist monarchy. That should be now passé. We've got to move on. But nevertheless, though, you know, not that many people would have known about or even cared about ancient Greece, except in Greece itself. And this is one of the paradoxes or anomalies. When the Greeks uh, successfully rebelled against the Ottoman Empire, to begin with, they had a more inclusive constitution. That is, more adult male Greeks were entitled to do more, that is, vote on various things, than was the case in, say, this country, even after the Reform Act of 1832. So there's a kind of uneven, combined uneven development going on in Europe. And in Greece, of course, they're very aware of Pericles and so on. But paradoxically, they're under and imposed, because they're a weak country, imposed on them by the great powers. They have a pathetic, really, monarchy, Bavarian and then Danish. And um, that lasted indeed in various forms down to the 1960s. That was Professor Paul Cartledge. Democracy, a Life is published in the UK today, the 24th of March, by Oxford University Press. In the US, it's due to be published next month, also by OUP. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231 Excludes tax must update rewards. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. A temporary export bar has been placed on a 14th century seal that was commissioned by Robert the Bruce to authorise documents. Considered to be extremely rare and of outstanding significance, the two-part bronze seal was used for customs documents by Dunfermline Abbey as proof of their authority and endorsement by Robert I, King of Scotland. The export bar has been placed on the seal to prevent it from being sold to a foreign buyer, but it could eventually be exported from the UK unless a buyer can be found to match the asking price of more than £150,000, the Telegraph reports. Culture Minister Ed Vasey said, This amazing artefact represents one of the few objects directly associated with Robert the Bruce's reign. Its departure would not only result in the loss of this irreplaceable item, but it would also strip us of the opportunity to learn more about this exceptional figure. In other news, new research suggests that the ancient Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses III, 
was killed by multiple attackers at once. Coming at him from all sides with different weapons, the pharaoh's assassins slit his throat and cut off his big toe, advanced imaging techniques have revealed. The findings are published in a new book by Egyptologist Zahi Hawass and Cairo University radiologist Sahar Salim called Scanning the Pharaohs, CT Imaging of the New Kingdom Royal Mummies. Life Science reports that the team used CT scanning to find new evidence linked to an ancient plot to kill Ramesses III. Having previously discovered the cause of Ramesses' death, a cut to the throat with a sharp knife, the team has now found that the pharaoh sustained injuries from different types of weapons, suggesting that more than one attacker was involved. Ramesses III was killed in 1155 BC as part of a palace coup. Meanwhile, the remains of two medieval castles have been discovered in Glasgow. The structures, which are thought to include a 12th or 13th century castle used by the bishops of Glasgow, as well as the later Partick Castle, were found during a £250 million project by Scottish Water to upgrade the city's wastewater facilities. The discoveries were made in the Castlebank Street area north of the Clyde infrastructure. Hugh McBrien of West of Scotland Archaeology Service told BBC News no one knew anything about the 12th century castle in Partick. There was documentary evidence that the bishops of Glasgow spent time in Partick and there have been historical references to charters signed at Partick, but that's all. This is the most significant archaeological discovery in Glasgow in a generation. Our second interview this week is with Professor Anthony Grayling philosopher and master of New College of the Humanities. He is the author of a new book entitled The Age of Genius, which argues that the 17th century was a particularly important period for the development of the modern mind. I paid a visit to him at New College of the Humanities in London to discover the reasons for this argument. So 15th century, we had the Renaissance, 19th century, huge advances in science, technology, why, why did we pick the 17th century as the age of genius when so many incredible things were happening in other centuries? Well, you pick out uh, important centuries there. I think a lot of people think that the 16th century with the Reformation and the wars of religion in France and the 18th century with the Enlightenment are centuries that uh, attract a lot of attention. The 17th century, in uh, the UK anyway, tends to invite people's attention to the Civil War because that was such a, a profoundly important event for the UK uh, eventually, but also actually for the world because some of the political outcomes of that uh, influenced what happened as uh, a British Empire grew and its institutions globalised. But the 17th century is interesting and important for a number of other reasons beside. And it does get a little bit overshadowed by its two neighbouring centuries just because of the great interest uh, that they have. And the reason why I think it's uh, an important century is because at the beginning of the 17th century, essentially, even the best educated minds of Europe were still pretty well late medieval. And by the end of that century, they were recognisably modern. I think the 17th century is the century in which the modern world really was born. Now, of course, a lot of people talk about this bit of history and that bit of history as being when the, the uh, modern mind came to birth. But I've got actual arguments and, and proof. Let me give you just one example. In 1606, Shakespeare's play Macbeth was premiered in Whitehall Palace in London before James I and VI 
uh, and uh, in front of a, an audience of royal courtiers who just the year before would have been shocked by a terrorist attack or an attempted terrorist attack which was aimed at uh, killing the king and all his uh, parliament and advisers. That was the gunpowder plot in 1605. And the play Macbeth addresses the question of what would happen if you killed the king because kings ruled by divine right and the hierarchy of things in the universe was something divinely instituted. So the murder of Macbeth is presented by Shakespeare as being something that subverts the order of nature. Now, 43 years later, in 1649, from the very same building, Charles I stepped out onto a scaffold and had his head chopped off. So some, in some way, in that period, in the course of a single generation, the mind of the world had begun to change. Another example... Uh, in the first part of the 17th century, if you, anywhere in Europe, put forward the view that the Earth went round the sun, you might very well get yourself burned at the stake, as happened to Vanini and Giordano Bruno, and very nearly to Galileo. Before the end of the century, people were able to talk freely about the Copernican system, even indeed about the idea that there might be other worlds, life and other planets elsewhere in the universe. Again, a mark of a complete change of mindset. So something happened in the 17th century of the very, very first importance which changed the world. And I suppose the huge question is, what happened? What, what happened in this century that didn't happen in previous centuries, or maybe, I guess, didn't happen in subsequent centuries? Because one, one of the things that you talk about a lot in the book is the Thirty Years' War, which convulsed much of Europe. Did these kind of military events have a large bearing on the, the philosophical changes? I think the Thirty Years' War was, was a very important catalyst because it, uh, it was a tremendously destructive war. Indeed, it was the worst war by a long measure in uh, Europe ever. I mean, in, in the whole history of Europe. Um, people say that the destruction in the German-speaking parts of Europe in the Holy Roman Empire were equivalent to the destruction that Germany saw by 1945, at the end of the Second World War. And certainly some calculations say one in every three German-speaking people died either directly or indirectly as a result of that war. So obviously it was a catastrophic time. Now, unfortunately, catastrophe uh, isn't universally bad because some things are allowed to happen in chaotic and anarchic times, which might not happen in more controlled and peaceful times. For example, communications. In particular, letters being sent from one thinker to another, one scientist to, to another, which might have been censored or might have had more difficulty getting through. Even it did people, when border controls break down and things are more fluid and armies are moving around Europe, the fact that, uh, that, that people can meet one another and talk and in those days, of course, it was scholars, merchants and soldiers who travelled, hardly anybody else. And scholars could speak to anybody anywhere in Europe because they all spoke Latin and understood it. They all wrote Latin. Now, in the 16th century, a movement had begun as a result of the Reformation, which was liberty of conscience. The idea that people, and this was in the Protestant uh, um, aspect of Christianity, were responsible for their own immortal souls and it was their relationship with the deity which was direct and personal but the idea of liberty of conscience very quickly spilled over into the idea of liberty of thought and inquiry and in order to make free thought and inquiry possible given the powerful hold that uh, religion in general and the church in particular held over inquiry something needed to happen to break open the, the, the bonds the chains that uh, required orthodoxy and the tumults of the first half of the 17th century seem to me to be a catalyst in that respect. And I suppose in England, while we didn't have the Thirty Years' War, you had the Civil War and the killing of a king. And, and England, of course, is very famous for being 
potentially the originator of the scientific revolution were things like the Royal Society. So did that also have a big impact? Well, the scientific revolution began earlier, of course. It, it, uh, you know, the roots of it lie in the late Renaissance, uh, in Copernicus in the 16th century, uh, and in um, the work that was being done towards the end of that century, and in the early 17th century by Galileo and others. Now, what's interesting about um, the debate about scientific ideas in the first half of the 17th century is, is two, twofold. One is... It was conducted by individuals who were communicating with one another, either by voce or, or by letter, mainly by letter. And there were a number of very important people. Marin Mersenne was one in France, Samuel Hartlib in England, who were like internet service in Hawaii because they were receiving lots and lots of letters. They were copying them and sending them out again, keeping people in touch with one another, uh, sending out and spreading ideas. And so that they were absolutely key to this idea of a debate which was, which was going on. By the end of the 17th century, in the second half, instead of there being just individuals communicating with one another, things have got more organised. The Royal Society is an example. Institutionalising scientific debate, bringing scientists together, uh, really sharing their ideas and being able to promote their work experimentally. So the first half of, of the century led to the second half of the century on the basis of two very important things. One was that... Up until the beginning of the 17th century, a lot of people couldn't really distinguish between astrology and astronomy, or between magic and medicine, or between alchemy and chemistry. And there was a great concentration in the early 17th century on the question of method. How do you do proper science so that you can get genuine results, move towards truth, separate it out from things that weren't going to lead anywhere? There are two major figures here, René Descartes, the, the French philosopher, uh, and Francis Bacon in England. And they both concentrated on this question of how do you think? How do you conduct inquiry? What is the epistemological basis for real advance in the sciences? And I think their contributions were seminal. Indeed, the Royal Society of London actually cite Bacon as a major influence on them about thinking uh, how we do science and how we get the kind of results that genuinely break Bread. Is it fair to say there were a few select individuals without whom you wouldn't have had this age of genius? People like Descartes, like Bacon? There are certainly a, a number of salient individuals, and, uh, but in fact there are quite a few of them, because if you start listing names, you find dozens and dozens of people who were really tremendously important and whose names survive. I mean, we, we know about these people now. Uh, you know, of course, we think of Galileo and Newton, we think of Descartes and Locke, we think about Hobbes, we think about Bacon. Uh, but, you know, there the were the Huygens, father and son. Uh, there was Gassendi, there was Mersenne, whom I mentioned a little while ago, uh, and, and Hartlib. There were so many people who played their parts in this process, moving inquiry from something that was sort of scattergun, which was mixed up with things that weren't really inquiry, uh, all that, you know, interest in magic and Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism uh, around about the beginning of the century, into organised, disciplined, scientific inquiry and progress, uh, into a philosophical revolution premised on this idea of method, uh, of a much more strict and austere uh, disciplined way of thinking about things. And of course it was accompanied by uh, a liberation of, of creativity in other respects too, because the 17th century is a, an extraordinary century from the point of literature and uh, the plastic arts, even indeed to some extent in music. And so we see a, a time which is so fertile in its genius, forging a whole new way of thinking about the world. What did this mean for, there wasn't just one church at this point, clearly you had the Catholic Church and various 
um, Lutheran, Calvinist, but how did they respond to a much more inquiring mindset that was developing in Europe? Well, the Catholic Church um, had its last great throw of the dice, really, on this front with Galileo. Uh, up until that point, they'd been trying to stem the advance of thinking about the world which was at odds with Scripture. I quote in the book uh, correspondence between a, a monk called Foscarini and the famous Cardinal Bellarmino uh, on this question of whether or not Scripture could be made uh, consistent with the Copernican view of the solar system or of the universe. And Bellarmino said, look, if you read the Bible, it tells us that the earth is at the centre, it doesn't move, that the heavens go round it, uh, and you really have to take your life in your hands if you're going to disagree with that. That was in the Palmy year 1615, right at the beginning of the 17th century. By the end of the century, the Roman Catholic Church, I mean the Church of Rome, had given up the struggle to try to stem the, the tide of advance in thinking. It wasn't until the 1990s, that's just a couple of decades ago, that they finally said they were wrong to uh, prosecute Galileo. So uh, they did take a long time to reconcile themselves to these great movements. But in um, Calvinism, for example, a very strict uh, orthodoxy of view was imposed as well. Both the Catholic and the Protestant communities were very anxious and uncertain about whether they were dealing with science or they were dealing with magicians. Uh, you know, mathematicians, for example, were sometimes regarded as sort of, you know, necromancers. Um, so there was a great deal of, of uncertainty about what the impact of this new knowledge would be. And had it not been for the highly disruptive nature of the first half of the 17th century with this terrible war, it's quite likely that these authority figures or attempting to impose their authority, it might be that they would have been more effective at slowing down the advance of science. And one thing that I, I felt was interesting in your book is when you talk about a lot of figures like, say, Newton and Descartes, who we see now traditionally sort of secular thinkers, scientists, actually they had often strong religious beliefs or, or even strong beliefs in the occult as well. So for them, it didn't necessarily have to be a separate thing. It all kind of fit into their worldview. Now, this is one very interesting feature of the century indeed. Uh, Descartes himself was a completely orthodox Catholic. Indeed, he wanted his writings to be accepted by the Jesuits for their schools. He wanted his works to supplant those of Aristotle, for example. And in the case of Newton, he spent much more time uh, engaged in occult studies than he did in physics. And indeed, there's a very deep inconsistency between what he writes about scientific method, which is very, very sensible indeed, and the fact that he thought the book of Revelations contained secrets about the nature of the universe, and he tried to crack the code. He thought it was a numerological code. So these, these ambiguities uh, exist and persist. And it's very interesting to notice uh, that fact. But they were to some extent at war with themselves over these matters of method and the progress towards truth. And it's rather interesting to notice that in the great debate generated by these movements in the 17th century, it was the aspect that has given rise to our modern world and to modern science that won. By the 18th century, these tail-end flourishes, if you like, of interest in magic and the occult have pretty well died away, and they are as, as they are today... Uh, very much minority interests. Predominantly here we're talking about what's happening in Europe. Were similar movements or similar developments happening in, say, Asia, in um, Africa, maybe potentially parts of the Americas? Often these parts of the world were, were just as developed in many other ways as Europe was at this point. Well, of course, Europe is significant at this time because it was at this moment in, in history that the globalising influence of Europe 
and Eurocentric ideas, institutions, ways of approaching things, was really getting going. Globalization started in the late 15th century with the Portuguese and uh, Dutch explorers. By the 17th century, colonization of large parts of the world was growing apace. And so European ideas, European institutions, European practices were spreading themselves over large parts of the Earth's surface. In this time, and the 17th century is just a time when the Ming dynasty in China was uh, mutating into the Qing dynasty, things were changing uh, there. There had already for a number of centuries been a, a lot of stasis. You think back to the Tang dynasty in China, which was a, a time of great progress and flourishing and really marvellous poetry. And in the centuries that have preceded that, you saw a great deal of technological process. But China seems in those centuries to have stagnated, especially during the, the later part of the Ming and the early Qing. And um, in India, the great traditions that had existed for many, many centuries, great philosophical and literary traditions, by this time, the colonizing influence of, of Europe was already having an impact. So it is the European continent which is the motor of change at this point in history, having, not very many centuries before, been way behind China and India and, and maybe the great civilizations of Central and South America uh, in degree of sophistication. But certainly by this point, it is Europe that's leading the way. And then I suppose, importantly, Europe is also colonizing. So this, these ideas are then spread around the world in the ways Chinese ideas weren't spread to Europe, you know, previously. That's exactly right, yes. It's colonisation which took these ideas and, and institutions. Remember, we talk about institutions, we talk also about uh, schools, education, the setting up of universities, and the uh, kind of curricula taught in those institutions, the way they were taught. All of this is, is a part of the colonising output of Europe at the time. So these dramatic events... We mentioned earlier the fact that the English Civil War had a great impact on the world afterwards, despite the fact that at that time England was a relatively small country in population terms, uh, by far wasn't the superpower that it became in succeeding centuries, because at that time, first it was Spain in the early part of the 17th century, then of course it was France, was the great world superpower in the late 17th, early 18th century. And yet what was happening in England, bit by bit, came to have an enormous impact in America, Australia, uh, India, and South Africa, and many places in the world, just at that point beginning to be colonised. And you, you've shown lots of examples of how this really was an extraordinary age of, of extraordinary people. Did the people living in the 17th century realise they were living through what you described as the age of genius? It's always interesting when one looks back at history to ask that question. Uh, did people know that they were living in the Renaissance or the Reformation? They certainly didn't use those words in every case, although, of course, in the case of the Renaissance, they did. Petrarch said, uh, we live in a time of rebirth. Uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant, in the 18th century said, we live in a time of enlightenment. We aren't yet enlightened, but we're getting that way. Uh, so, yes, there were people who were conscious that, um, that things were changing. But they didn't, of course, know what the longer-term impact of those changes was going to be. Now, in the 17th century, there was a lot of self-awareness about the degree of progress that was being made in scientific understanding and in what you might call philosophical clarity, especially about matters of method. This was very self-conscious indeed. And also, people were conscious, too, by the time that the dreadful Thirty Years' War ground to an exhausted and depleted end in 1648 with the treaties of Westphalia. Uh, by, by that time, too, people s had seen that 
the world order, because the world for them was Europe and the Holy Roman Empire and the relationship with the Ottoman Empire, that the world had changed. They were quite conscious of this, I think. This is why it was possible for people writing about politics and institutions and government and the rights of of, um, people versus monarchies towards the end of the 17th century to write in a completely different, as it were, mental tone of voice from the way they were writing earlier in the century. These changes that occurred largely on an intellectual level, were they also played out on a more practical level in, say, political systems, in economies, in in technology? One of the things that's been pointed out by uh, by historians of the 17th century, and my you know my day job is I'm a professor of philosophy and I'm not an historian, but I'm very interested in the historical development of philosophical ideas. But historians have pointed out, people like Christopher Hill, for example, that one of the drivers at work here was increasing literacy, was the fact that um, more literature was available in vernacular languages. So w- w- when you read something like the demands of the levellers, let's say, during the Civil War in England, for annual parliaments, for universal male adult suffrage, for greater participation in the political decisions that govern their lives, in a more equal distribution of the goods of society and of wealth. You're looking at ideas which only began to actually come into fruition a couple of centuries later. But these were very intelligent, very clear-minded demands. People who made them were conscious of the import of them and why they were making those demands. And so these great intellectuals, these great minds of the century who were leading the advance of change, they weren't alone in understanding the impact of these things. There really was more than a trickle-down effect of filtering down, and there was quite a wide spread uh, knowledge of of these changes and discussion of them. For example, I quote um, people who just, you know, as it were, in an aside, mention to one another something about the circulation of the blood. Well, that is something that had only, after a great deal of painstaking research, been discovered uh, by Harvey in the late 1620s. So here you see a diffusion of ideas into the increasingly literate society of the 17th century. And I think that must have had its part to play in making the, uh, as it were, the element of debate and discussion such that these advances were able to take hold. Although some of them would have taken, as you already mentioned, 100, 200 years. In a way, sometimes people are almost a bit ahead of themselves at this point. Oh, absolutely, in many respects. Uh, you know, for, to take, take a slightly different example, it was the early 18th century, really, when objections to slavery really began to take hold on the part of people who weren't themselves slaves uh, among the Quakers in North America. And it took, you know, a century and more um, before major changes occurred there liberation of the slaves in the United States of America in the mid-19th century, for example. So ideas can be entertained very consciously, they can be generated, they can be discussed, and there will be people who are passionate about them, but not all of them take immediate effect. The idea that did take immediate effect in the 17th century was, again, this really important idea of method, how you conduct inquiry. And there would not, in my view, have been uh, any concrete outcome of that change as early as it happened had there not also been this sort of breakdown of order in the 17th century, which made it more difficult for institutions of authority to control thought and to silence people who were putting forward these new ideas. Do you think that the pace of intellectual innovation actually slowed down after the 17th century? Because 
if this was the age of genius, was, was it a lesser age afterwards? Um, no, I don't think so, actually, because uh, if you look at the whole trajectory of, of progress in thought and in society since the 17th century, so we've got the 18th century with its enlightenment and its two great revolutions, the American and French revolutions, introduction of the idea of the rights of man and the uh, proliferation of ideas about uh, political and social institutions that were much more inclusive. We look at the 19th century and in it the great movements for enfranchisement of working class people, of rights for labourers, of labour laws, and then the beginning of the movements for the enfranchisement of women, women's suffrage really taking hold, movements against slavery in the 19th century. And in the 20th, despite the sort of staggering blows that the 20th century received from the First and Second World Wars and the clench of the Cold War after the Second World War, the degree of progress made across all fronts, in science, uh, in society, in ideas of, of human rights, for example, in the setting up of the United Nations and the dissemination of conceptions of what a good life might be for people and what their entitlements are. In all these respects, I think, and of course this is a very Whiggish view of history, but an enormous amount of progress has been made. And just to give you a sort of clinching bit of proof as to that claim about progress, I would say this. There is no place in geography or time in history that I would want to live in but the, this modern world today if I were a woman and in the Western world. And I think that the, the fact that um, certainly in, in what we call Western countries, the position of women has changed so dramatically as a result of these long-term influences over the last three or four centuries is a mark of progress. And do you think it would ever be possible for us to experience another age of genius I think we're living in one now, actually, um, because uh, when you look at the explosion of potential offered us by the technologies we now use. Now, I don't think that the technologies that we have constitute a change of, of kind. It's a change of degree. You know, we've gone from the clay tablet to the telegraph and the telephone and the electric typewriter to, you know, our smartphones and so on now. So we're able to communicate much more rapidly, get information of almost any kind, the touch of a button. And these things are fantastic potentiators. And so they liberate us to do other things and to think creatively in other ways. Of course, there are, there are many deficits of them as well. But what it makes possible, I think, will be an unleashing of creativity and of innovation, which we are in the middle of now and which doesn't seem to have any discernible limit. So during the course of the 21st century, it's going to be incredibly interesting to see what these potentiating devices do for us in the way of a whole new revolution of thought about people, about our societies, and indeed uh, about the kind of knowledge of our universe that we're now accumulating. That was Professor Anthony Grayling. The Age of Genius, the 17th Century and the Birth of the Modern Mind is out now in the UK and the US, published by Bloomsbury. And also out now is the April edition of BBC History magazine. Inside this month's issue, we're taking an in-depth look at Shakespeare and his histories as we approach the 400th anniversary of the playwright's death. Plus, we have articles on ancient Rome, an Anglo-Saxon warrior king, and the sad fate of Catherine Howard. Look out for our April edition now in all good news agents and our many digital formats. One of the regular sections within the magazine is our First World War, which charts the progress of that conflict a hundred years ago through the words of those who lived and fought through it. 
we've also been including accompanying audio clips within the podcast. And now we've come to March 1916. So here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is able seaman George Wainford, describing his experiences on board a new ship, HMS Onslaught. And in the morning, I said to mate of mine, I said, I want to hear this afternoon. So I said, why? <laughs> I said, well, I've got a feeling that I'll get a draft check when we get back to dinner. He said, hey, do you know? I said, I know, I just got the feeling. And sure enough, as we got back to the barracks and where I sat, there was a, a ship there. We brought to the drafting office. So you know what that meant, you got a ship. So I went over there and was formed, I got to do an onslaught on the Clyde. Uh, Gowan, brand new, she, she'd just been built, she hadn't been commissioned. In fact, I don't think at that time she'd been taken over by the Navy, she was still not uh, accepted. So I got there and the first thing I noticed how small she was compared with ships I'd been used to and how cramped everything was. For instance, on the big ships, your kit bag, which stood about three foot high, was stowed in bag racks, you know, with a name plate on the bottom of your bag showing and all. Everything ships out but here, on onslaught. All your gear was unpacked and put into seat lockers on which the crew sat to eat their meals and that. So in consequence, if anybody wanted to get to the locker, nine times out of ten, somebody else was sitting on that particular locker and got to say, sorry Jack, or whatever it was, I want my pair of shoes out, a cap or something. You know, you had to get so used to being crowded together after a big battleship, it took a lot of getting used to. Anyhow, that was that. We, we went out before we had to go out to the Clyde and do the acceptance trials. What did that involve? That involved the Navy being satisfied she was as she should be and she was formally handed over and then they fly the white ensign, in other words she joined the Navy. And we went out and it was filthy weather. And they laid all, one of the tables in the forecastle had been laid out with all kinds of eatables, things that you hadn't seen for ages. And this was for the all the dockyard high-ups to have a meal and uh, there was beer and poultry and meats and pies and all kinds of things. And we went out, right down the Clyde out in the open sea and she turned and twisted and nearly stood on her head. Well, I was hopeless. I was as sick as I could possibly be. I'd never experienced anything like it. It was terrible. I mean, people laugh at seasickness, but when you are seasick, you're really ill. There's no doubt about it. That was George Wainford. And now let's hear from Sergeant Jack Dorgan, talking about the aftermath of an injury he received while serving on the Western Front in Belgium. Uh, were you in great pain? When, when oh you... yes, we had got a piece of shrapnel uh, about half the, the length of your thumb in my leg and it was still in the leg. What had happened was it went in the, the thick part of my, uh, behind the, the leg, the left leg, and lodged itself down the leg, travelled down the leg 
behind the knee. Uh, so Bob, forget his second name, our sergeant, ambulance, uh, stretcher bearer says, he says, Jack, you've got a nasty wound there. However, he bandaged me up, put me face down on the stretcher, put me on the truck and wheeled me away. The, the officer had gone and I was two corporals. I took, last thing I did when I left was to tell the two corporals what they had to do uh, with the ration party. And then I was, I was taken away uh, down the railway line. We came to and lifted off the off the truck and carried across the countryside to a farm which was called Hospital Farm. Now Hospital Farm had been was being used as a first aid post and had been for some time uh, way back behind the front line. And when I arrived at the uh, farm, I was put alongside of quite a number of wounded uh, men. It seemed to have been a bit of a push on because there was quite a number of us lying there on stretchers. I was lying face down, bandaged, and then I heard a voice say, Sergeant, you've got a piece of shrapnel in your leg. And it was, I looked up and it was a, an army sister, hospital sister, in all of glory with a cape and red edged, regular type of, of what one visualised as a nurse and sister of the, of the vinegar type of person. And there she stood looking down at me and as she cut off with a big pair of scissors, she cut the bandages off, didn't strip the bandages, cut them off my leg. And she says, you've got a piece of shrapnel in your leg, Sergeant. I says, I know. She says, the doctor will be here shortly and he will attend to you. So I lay there sometime, no idea how long, because I seemed to be very busy. And then I heard a voice say, Sergeant, yeah, I'm the doctor. You have a piece of shrapnel in your leg. I says, I know. He says, it'll have to come out. I says, I know. Aye. The doctor says, what you don't know is, I haven't any drugs, anything to give you to deaden the pain while I cut it out. I says, get on with it. I'm lying face down on the stretcher. So four orderlies came, one on each arm, one on each leg, and held me down while the doctor, I heard him say, I have no drugs to give you, but he says, my instruments are all clean. He says, we've had a tremendous lot of casualties today, so you'll just have to bear with it. And I never felt him cut into my leg behind the knee to get the pieces rattling out, but I certainly felt him getting it out because when he got a hold of the shrapnel with a pair of pinchers or whatever, 
and tried to pull it out, the flesh was still sticking to the jagged edges of the piece of shrapnel. And every time I wanted to shout, the fellow on my right arm just took my head and shoved my face into the stretcher. <laughs> and that's how I suffered while the doctor cut into my leg. And if you realize behind the leg are some very strong muscles and tendons there, must have severed some of them when he cut the shrapnel or hay. Because I was many, many, many months before I regained the full use of that leg. That was Jack Dorgan. You can read more from our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about a forgotten English colony in South America and paying a visit to a monastery that suffered greatly in the 16th century dissolution. Do join us for that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>